If you have a Bible with you, open it up to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Isaiah, chapter 9. I'm going to give you some background on what was going on in Isaiah's day. Uh, well, actually, what it was going on in, in, in Israel. And it was a divided kingdom, but uh, just to, to, it's important that we can locate where this is in history where it is with what was going on in their culture. And uh, so I want to I take a few minutes to develop the text before we actually get into it. Uh, when Isaiah came onto the scene, Israel had been in the promised land, Canaan was what it was called, uh, for almost 700 years. Uh, now, it would be another 740 years before the birth of Christ. So that's about the timeline that we're looking at. Now, as far as the nation of Israel goes, after the exodus from Egypt, remember when Pharaoh, uh, Moses, or God raised up Moses to deliver them from Pharaoh, and then the people wandered around out in the wilderness for about 40 years. Then they finally went in under Joshua. They went into the, the land of Canaan, the promised land, crossed the Jordan, and went in. For their first about 400 years in the land, judges ruled Israel. They didn't have a king. They had judges. And judges were, they were, they were uh, spiritual, military, and political leaders whom God raised up as a result of an ongoing cycle of uh, what was going on with the people of blessing. God would bless them because he loves his people. Uh, and then they would rebel and, and that he would judge them and allow uh, surrounding nations, a lot of them city-states, but surrounding nations to come in and thrash them. And then they would cry out for God and repent, which is that's changed their mind about how they'd been going about things. And, and, and so it went. There was a cycle and God kept raising up judges to fit whatever was going on in the social and political scene at that time. So then after the judges for about 120 years, uh, three kings reigned in Israel. The first was King Saul, started out well, didn't end well, fell on his own sword. Uh, The second would be King David, who was actually anointed king while Saul was still the king. And Saul ended up chasing him around Israel for 10 years and trying to kill him. But then David was a good king. He was a, he was a man, a king after God's own heart. That's what the Bible tells us, uh, that he was a, he was a godly man. He, he had his mistakes. Uh, he went through it and he paid for his mistakes. And yet he was, he was a godly king. And then after that, his son Solomon came to reign in Israel, and he reigned for a period of time. Most prosperous man to that in that day, anyway. He was kind of like the Elon Musk of early Israel. He, he was like the wealthiest guy in the world. And, and he had more money. He had way too many women. <laughs> and once enough. Uh, I mean, he had an abundance of everything. And yet, at the end of his life, he said, you know what? It's all vanity. Fear God and do what he says. That's, that was, that's really his message at the end of his life. So he struggled. He wrestled. God said, don't let, you know, don't get involved with foreign women. They'll draw you away from me. And what did he do? He got involved with foreign women and they drew him away from God. 
Well, again, at the end of his life, I believe that he repented. I believe that he got right with the Lord because if you read Ecclesiastes, that's what that's about. So after Solomon died, Israel had sort of a bloodless civil war. Uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and, and they split. The nation split at that time, divided into two nations, Israel to the north, the northern 10 tribes, and then Judah to the south. That was the other two tribes. And there was a clear delineation. They had different kings. They had different political systems, the whole thing. Now, uh, that was the political scene up until the time of Isaiah. Uh, So, and from King Solomon to the time of Isaiah, uh, the kingdom of Israel, the northern 10 tribes, they went through 18 kings. They, and, and all of them were bad for the people and all of them were rebellious towards the Lord. So they were going through this terrible godless time. The kingdom of Judah to the south, the two southern tribes, they went through 11 kings and they had some good and some bad. Some of the kings were uh, godly men and they followed the Lord. They, They adhered to the law of Moses and all of that. Some of them just went, we're going to do what we're going to do, and we don't really care. And so God would take care of them accordingly. So I say all of that because it was into these turbulent, turbulent days uh, that in Isaiah chapter 6, we see Isaiah being called by God, taken up to the very throne room of God and being called into the ministry. (laughs) He's going along. And Isaiah, he was a well-heeled guy. He was probably a nobleman in Israel. Uh, And he was well-known, well-liked. He had a family. We know that from the scripture. But he was taken up to the throne room of God and and he was undone. He said, whoa, (laughs) I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And Here he was seeing the throne of God, the train of God's robe filling the temple and smoke and seraphim and all of that. Out of that, God commissions Isaiah and says, I need you to go and to be a mouthpiece for me to the people. And Isaiah was a prophet to both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. All right. Uh, Most of the prophets were to one or the other, but he had a dual ministry and, and his ministry spanned the time when the northern kingdom was taken away. Uh, and then he ended up spending the rest of his time in the southern kingdom. The, the Assyrians got in there and thrashed them pretty well. So in that time, God's messages through Isaiah would be twofold. They would be messages of warning mixed with messages of hope. And so on the one hand, God would warn. He would say, look, (laughs) you're rebelling against me and I will judge because he's a holy and just and righteous God. And he does judge, but he also loves his people. And so he would always come in and, and, and issue these promises, these messages of hope in the midst of the difficulty that the nation was going through. Uh, Warning of judgment, but then also promising blessings 
to come through the prophet Isaiah. So as Isaiah's ministry began, God's judgment at this point was looming over the northern ten tribes. Assyria was the world empire. They were the superpower of that day. And they were camped at Israel's door and threatening to come in. And they would come in. Uh, uh, They would overwhelm the northern kingdom. And it would actually cease to exist from that point forward. After that, it would become Samaria and Galilee, the two northern regions of the nation. We'll get to that. It was into this context, folks. It was into this political scene, this time in history, this place of Israel's rebellion, that God makes a promise through Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. And, and because of understanding the background here, I believe that the promise, it, it should impact us as being a very powerful promise. Uh, because God, again, he loves his people. Israel was his chosen people. And he loved them. He, he was essentially kind of holding them up by the nape of the, nape of the neck and saying, you're not going to get away with it. While at the same time saying, I love you. I, I want good things for you. So in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, we read, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Naphtali. (laughs) And afterward, more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. So, What he's saying here is the northern regions of Canaan, the promised land around the Sea of Galilee, uh, those were the areas that were occupied by the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those were some of the the 12 tribes to which the, the land had been allotted earlier on. It was also became known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Reason for that is because especially as the Assyrians came in, they displaced a lot of the residents and they brought people in from all over the Assyrian empire uh, to repopulate the land. And so it became known as largely a Gentile region, which is anybody that's not Jewish. So Galilee would be the most severely ravaged by the Assyrians uh, when they invaded from the north. And, And it was a huge empire. Now, the promise... Here, in the midst of this judgment, the, again, it, it's judgment and promises. It's it, look forward to blessing, but understand that you need to take me seriously in the way that you're behaving towards me. So the promise is that this land, once lightly esteemed by the Lord, would one day have special blessing. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So now here we begin to see a glimmer of what God is going to speak through Isaiah, what he's speaking through Isaiah regarding this land. He says, "They, the people are walking in darkness, they will see a great light. Now, Matthew speaks of this in the New Testament. Uh, he, he says, look, this is the, the a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. In, in Matthew chapter 4, uh, we read in verse 13, after leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, referring to Jesus, came and dwelt in Capernaum. 
which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, Nazareth is sort of in the northwestern part. Uh, it's kind of central, but northwestern part of the, the nation of Israel up in the Galilee region. When Jesus, I don't know if you remember, he, he said, you know, a prophet's not welcome in his own town and all of that. He relocated and centered his his ministry over on the shores, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in a place called Capernaum in Galilee of the Gentiles. So again, we see that just by moving his ministry, he's beginning to fulfill this. Matthew goes on, he says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. You don't have to guess here. Saying the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Now this is Matthew talking hundreds and hundreds of years later. Like I said, 740, probably by this time, 770 years later. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow uh, and shadow of death, light has dawned. Jesus himself declares in John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And, and, and get this, I mean, he ties it back to Isaiah. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So is there any question that when Isaiah begins to speak here, that he's speaking prophetically about the coming Messiah? No, not at all clearly stated in the New Testament that that's exactly what he's doing. Verse 3 in Isaiah chapter 9. You have multiplied the nation and increased his joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So there are two sides to this. Now we know, because we look back at the first advent, why we celebrate Christmas, why we remember the incarnation, that time when God became flesh, we can look back and we can understand that there was the first advent. We, that's what we call it. When, when God, when Jesus came the first time, we also know that there is going to be a second advent, but prophecy, just by the nature of it, it doesn't always see a timeline. Isaiah wouldn't have, he wouldn't have any point of reference to know that Messiah would come two different times. And so in understanding that principle about prophecy, I mean, sometimes we do get a timeline with prophecy, like in Daniel chapter nine, where Daniel says, you know, from the decree to go and restore and rebuild and do all of that until Messiah the Prince. And we can see that and tie that right to the day that Jesus (coughs) rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. In a second. Here, there is no timeline. So the prophecy kind of splits time. In the first advent, Jesus came as a suffering servant. We know that. Isaiah, would, he would prophesy of him uh, as a man of sorrows. And uh, we see that in Isaiah chapter 53. And then after seven years of punishing judgment in his second advent, He will come not as a suffering servant, but he will come as a conquering king. 
And that's what we'll see, and that has yet to take place. So we see nuances and references to both in this prophecy. So understand that. Don't be confused by that. The second thing is that the promises and the warnings that we see here are timeless. God's word is timeless in its application. And there are times where those things come to bear in our lives. And they're for all humanity. They're, they're not just for a bunch of people in a foreign land in Isaiah's day. So understand that as well. When we study God's word, we study it to be able to apply it to our own lives. And, and I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you're flirting with sin or you're involved in areas where you know you know that you know that you shouldn't be. Allow the warnings in God's word to come to bear in your life. Why? Because he loves you. He's not out to get you. He doesn't, he's not walking around with a two by four waiting to smack you when you get out of line. However, he does chasten those whom he loves. And so both sides, warnings and blessings. In verse five, he says, for every warrior sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of the fire. Now, this is a picture of what happens after the battle and the peace which follows. What he's saying is that, yeah, look, I judged Galilee of the Gentiles. I judged that region when I allowed the Assyrians to come down and to conquer them. But that will only be a chastisement. That will not be a permanent state for them. So what he's saying is that after the battle, after that, the peace which follows uh, will be peace from Israel's enemies. In Isaiah's day, yes. Uh, Also, we could take a reference to our, in in ourselves, in our own lives, uh, that it's the peace that follows that as Jesus triumphed over sin at the cross in his first coming. We can also look at, again, and you see how this is skipping through time, uh, that this is the peace which follows after Jesus conquers the global oppression that's coming in his second coming when he comes back in and he rides and he does war against the nations of the earth. All of this, all of these things. Now, this is all building to the core of his prophecy. Yeah, these are all, this is prophetic writing, but it's building towards the core of his prophecy. And that begins, that's in chapter, in verses six and seven here in chapter nine. Uh, first half of verse six, he says, for unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, The people in Jesus' day, when they would read this, there is a reason why when he went into Jerusalem, when he announced himself in the triumphal entry that we look at when we celebrate the crucifixion, resurrection, when we do the remembrance there, many call it Easter, just looking at the resurrection itself, the people thought he was going to set up his kingdom then. Because they didn't understand the time component with prophecy, with prophetic writing that we're looking at here. All right? So it was a logical thing for them to think when they said, tell us, are you going to set up your kingdom now? And, and Jesus said, it's not for you to know. It's only, only the Father knows. Because they understood that this prophecy had not yet been fulfilled. And it still hasn't. 
But in chapter 9, verse 6, the first part, unto us a child is born, we know that that has. Unto us a son is given, that has. And the government will yet be on his shoulder. You see again how this splits time. You've got to understand that when you're looking at prophetic writing, because if you don't, you'll get lost. You'll be, you'll be trying to apply things that don't fit. Let's look at this. Unto us a child is born. Now, Isaiah's description of Jesus' incarnation here, you could look at it as from the vantage point of earth. A child is born. This is, we're talking about a birth here. So he will be a child born into the world, and that emphasizes that Jesus, yeah, you've got to understand, he's fully God, fully man. This is getting into some deep theology, but you've got to understand this. That as man, as, as, as a human being, he had to be born. Why? He had to take the form of a man in order to die. Think about it, folks. You know, Jesus, when he was doing his earthly ministry, he would often refer to himself in two ways. He would talk about himself as the son of man. That's a reference to his nature as a human being, as a, as a man. He would also make reference to himself as the son of God. That's a, a reference to his deity, the fact that he is God in the flesh. God clothed, wrapped in, in human flesh. Uh, That he has both natures, and he has 100% of both natures at the same time. He didn't just stop being God when he was born. He continued to be God, but and he didn't. And when he ascended into heaven, he didn't stop being a man. He is still a man in a glorified body now, but he has a dual nature: the nature of man and the nature of God. He had to have that in order to die because God can't die. And yet as a man, he could. And he could satisfy the requirement for the penalty for your sin and mine as a man. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Think about it. Uh, he was that that when he took on humanity, he took on humanity to be a little lower than the angels for the suffering and pay attention to this for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. The scripture bears out exactly why Jesus had to take on humanity. He added humanity to his deity. Uh, the, the Bible tells us that he was tempted in all ways, even as we are, and yet without sin. How could that happen? God is not tempted, but we as men and women, we certainly are. And because he took on humanity, he was able to be tempted and to, as God, to resist that 100% of the time. He never sinned. He was the only sinless man. And so understand, that's why these things had to happen the way they did. In Colossians chapter 1, the apostle writes, he says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. There's that, that he's talking about you are alienated from God. That's the the warning. That's, That's the judgment. But now he has reconciled. That's the blessing. You see, this is the New Testament now, and it's the same pattern. Because God is a just and holy and, and 
he is a God who must judge sin. And yet he loves you. He loves me. Both sides of that come to bear. He said that you were enemies of God in, in, in your mind by wicked works, but he's now reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death. Is that reference to Jesus' humanity? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his light. So that's what we look at when we see unto us a child is born. Let's look at it further. Let's look at what he says, what Isaiah says as we go on here in verse 6. Unto us a son is given. Now, if unto us a child is born is a reference from the vantage point of earth, unto us a son is given is a reference from the vantage point of heaven. That God loved the world, that he gave his, he so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. We see Jesus' birth described from from the vantage point of heaven, and it speaks of Jesus as the Son of God. Remember, Son of Man, Son of God. A child is born, a son is given. That's how this ties. And I don't know, we don't know if Isaiah had this insight when he wrote these things, but under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at that time, because the Holy Spirit would come upon these men of God, the prophets, of old, and inspire them to write, what he wrote is perfectly in accord with the nature of God. Fully man, fully God. Isaiah 9, 6 declares both, the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Now, a lot of people are willing to accept Jesus as a good teacher, but not as God in the flesh. We've got to remember that he is a begotten son. Now, going back to the book of Hebrews, remember we looked at that he became a little lower than the angels when he took on humanity. In Hebrews 1, uh, the, the writer says, Jesus being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person, he's a chip off the old block, upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself, by himself, purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels. So in his humanity, he became lower than the angels. As God in the flesh, in his deity, he became so much better, higher than the angels. It says he's by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So the deity of Christ is never, it should never be a reason for unbelief, People wrestle with it. That you don't understand it doesn't mean it isn't true. Uh, Think about it, folks. I don't understand how Jesus could be fully God and fully man. We are finite beings. And I'll tell you what, whenever you as a finite being bump up against infinite terms, and these are infinite concepts, infinite terms, there's going to be a result of that. And that's called mystery. It's a mystery. We don't understand it. But like I said, don't, if you think, well, that I don't understand it means that it can't be so, you're actually saying that your thoughts are more developed than God's. And that's a dangerous assertion to make. But you've got to remember that it's because he is divine, because he is God, that he can save us. Again, think, a drowning man cannot save a drowning man. It doesn't work. If Jesus did not, if he was not God, if he did not possess deity, 
then he would not be sinless. If he were not sinless, he would not have the ability to save. So again, unto us a son is given. Now the next part of verse 6 points forward to the second advent, to the that which is yet to take place. Uh, when he says the government will be upon his shoulder. Uh, again, they, the people in Jesus' day thought that he was going to come in and throw off the Romans and set up his kingdom then. No, that was not going to be the case because he had a higher calling and a higher mission than simply restoring political order to a screwed up world. And that was that he had in his mind and in his, as, as central to his mission, the salvation of men and women down through history. You and I would not be sitting here today, uh, and if you know the Lord, if you have a relationship with Christ, you would not be able to make claim to that had Jesus set up his kingdom then. As if he set up his kingdom, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. If he hadn't gone to the cross, we would be without hope. It talks about the government being upon his shoulder. It's a reference to after the second coming. Uh, we look towards what, what's called the, the millennial reign of Christ, where he will rule and reign from Jerusalem personally for a thousand years. Now, that's not the end of his kingdom, because uh, what we read here is that uh, the government will be on his shoulders, but he will rule and reign for eternity. Now, the rest of verse 6 describes the character of this son of man, the son of God, and in the Bible, a name is indicative of character. Uh, remember that. The word Jesus, the name Jesus means God is salvation. Uh, it's a derivative of the Hebrew word Yeshua or Joshua. Uh, we see there, there are a ton of parallels uh, between Joshua and his ministry back. And uh, I could rabbit trail on that. We would be here for a lot longer than I want to be here today. So suffice it to say... Uh, it says here in, in the second half of verse 6 that his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So let's look at these together briefly. I, we, could, we could spend a lot of time on each one of these. Um, but just to, just to touch on them, and you, you could look at it as the Messiah is wonderful. He says his name will be called Wonderful. Looking back, we see the Messiah is wonderful. The glory of who Jesus is and what he has done for us should fill us with wonder and awe. If you understand the God of the Bible, if you understand Jesus as he's revealed in the pages of scripture, you'll be filled with awe. You'll be filled with wonder. You will be scratching your head wondering, why would he love us so much? And yet he does. He's wonderful. The thing about that is the word wonderful is a noun. It's not an adjective. Now remember, adjectives are describing words, describe something about him. It's true, he is wonderful in that sense, but it's a title. It, it, it's, it's as though he's saying his name, the Messiah, will be wonderful. That's his title. That's who he is. The next thing we look at is the Messiah is our counselor. 
So where do you go for advice? Where do you go when your, your life is jammed up? Where do you go when you're wrestling over something or a situation or a relationship or whatever it is? I'll tell you what I do. I go to the Word of God. I, <laughs> I remember uh, years ago, I, I, I ran a billboard business. I had a bunch of billboards in California. At one time I had a, a spirit medium come and ask if they could advertise on my signs. <laughs> and my answer was <laughs> a flat no, because I don't want to be advocating for people to go and get advice there. That person is not a good counselor. But I have found that as I consult the word of God, the divinely inspired word of God, that the counsel that is that comes from from this this is as though it's coming right from Jesus himself. He is a wonderful counselor. He's the one who guides our lives. Uh, he's, it should be the Christian's immediate resource for godly counsel. And many times, one of the Proverbs says that, that there's victory or safety in a multitude of counselors. That's true. But that doesn't mean that I go out and I take a poll. <laughs> we know how polls go. What that means is that there's a circle of people in my life, elders in our church, people that I know, uh, my son, people that are godly people that I will consult. Why? Because they have the same Holy Spirit indwelling them as I do. They have the same Bible that I do. And so when I see that there's safety in a multitude of counselors, I am seeking the Lord in that. And I'm seeking him through the godly counsel of others. A good idea, but be careful who you select to seek godly counsel from. Make sure that it lines up with this. Going further, Messiah is a mighty God. There, there's a popular notion that says that Jesus is not as... He, that he's not as prominent as the Father. We look at the, at, at the the Godhead. We look at the Trinity: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal. They 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 are not. Jesus is not less because he's the Son. You got to understand this: that when it talks about this, he's the God of all creation and glory. He's the Lord who reigns in heaven. He's the one, the only one that's worthy of our worship and our praise. So Messiah is mighty God. And you look in the Gospel of John, you look in, in Hebrews chapter 1 that we were looking at a few minutes, a few minutes ago, you will see that Jesus is ascribed co-equality with the Father. Lastly, and this is a confusing one, but you have to kind of get into the original language a little bit to parse through it. The Messiah is the everlasting father. Now, do not confuse that with Jesus being the first person of the Trinity, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And sometimes people do that, and cultic groups get weird on this. But again, looking at the original language, a better rendering of this is that he is the father or the source of eternity. That, that Jesus himself, is the source of eternity. And the idea is in these Hebrew words is that, that as a source of eternity, that he himself is the creator. So 
being eternal, he is the one that can confer eternal life on those who would come to trust in him. Lastly, the Messiah is the Prince of Peace. I I love that title. You see that a lot this time of year. Prince of Peace. That's where it comes from. Here in Isaiah chapter 9. He is the one who makes peace. Peace between God and man? Yes. Uh, Philippians chapter 4 talks about the peace of God. That as a believer, one of the birthrights that we have is that we can have the peace of God, that we can have a settledness in our own hearts and souls. But that doesn't come until you have peace with God. How do you come to have peace with God? You go to the Prince of Peace. When he hung on the cross, when he atoned for our sin, he reconciled us to God. No longer would we be at enmity with God. We could have peace. Now that's, folks, it's for anybody who will come, who will simply put their faith, put trust in him, that look, I, I am tired of wrestling in my life. I'm tired of wrestling with sin. I'm tired of wrestling with myself. I'm tired of this unrest in my heart, in my soul. I need true peace. He's the Prince of Peace. The other aspect of this is the, the, the Aramaic, the Hebrew is Sar Shalom. And what it means is the one who will at last bring peace to our sin-filled and troubled world. In Isaiah's day, they needed peace from the Assyrians, from their own rebellion, from their, their wicked hearts. And Isaiah's words would be so encouraging to these people. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So we're not talking about a temporary peace here. We're not talking about, well, you're going to get a little bit. No, (laughs) the peace that he offers is an eternal peace. It is a permanent peace. It is a state of being. Does that mean that we don't wrestle? Of course we do. We're human, and yet the peace that's available to us, again, every man, woman, and child is a supernatural peace that comes from God himself in the person of Jesus doing the work to reconcile us to himself, to bring two estranged parties together and thus bring peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this beyond the millennium, which is, I mean, we're in the age of grace now that began when Jesus went to the cross, where we're the grace of God is freely extended to all people. And that will go on until uh, the church is taken out of here. We've looked at Israel's history from the time they came out of Egypt. Now looking at, at the church's history, looking ahead, not back, that we have what, what is coming. And we have a really good record. I mean, we can see that the things that were accomplished in the first advent, why we celebrate today, that they were accomplished 100% accurately. 
that they indeed came to pass exactly as Isaiah wrote 740 years before Christ, before Messiah would come. You can use that as a down payment. You can bank on that. He talks about uh, the reign of Messiah, that he'll rule in peace forever. Now God had promised King David all the way back in Second Samuel chapter 7, David had wanted to build God a house. He wanted to build the temple. And God said, you know, David, you got too much blood on your hands. He was a man, he was a warrior. But because God loved him and because God had a future plan for his dynasty, he said, look, David, no, I don't want you to build me a house. And I'm paraphrasing here. He said, I'm going to build you a house. And your house will be a forever house. It will be an everlasting house. Talking about the house of David. Talking about the throne of David and his kingdom. That there would be no end. We're told that Jesus came to sit on the throne of David. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Prophesied here. Again, over 700 years before it would come to pass. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So verses 6 and 7 again as we wrap up. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Folks, we live in the time in between. We see both the first advent, the first coming of Christ, and the second in this prophecy. Like I said, in prophecy, I look at it, 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 you know, some of you guys have never driven a stick shift because everything's automatic now. But I I think about a stick shift in a car that you're, you're going along in one gear and you push in the clutch that disengages the transmission so that you can shift gears. You let the clutch out and you're in a new gear. Well, prophecy is sort of like that. What happens and what we see here is that God is speaking through Isaiah here in this prophecy that he's, he is giving Isaiah instruction and that at a certain point he pushes in the clutch. And we see that. That's the time in between the first and the second advent, the first and the second coming. When will he let the clutch out? He's already begun. We don't know when he will fully let it out, when prophecy will fully re-engage, but it could be today. Nothing has to be fulfilled for that to take place. Be encouraged, folks. God is still at work. We see living proof in these words that God is still at work, that what he prophesied in the first coming came to pass perfectly. So what does that do? How does that influence me when I look towards the second coming? When I look towards the return of Christ? When I look forward to him taking the church out of here? It should encourage your heart. It should fill you with gratitude. Because we look back at that child that was born. We look back 
at that son who was given with gratitude. So as we celebrate the incarnation today, as we look at that, as we focus on that, at the same time, through the eyes of faith, we look forward to the second advent. We look forward to eternity in the presence of God. And that's what we call hope. The same pattern that God used Isaiah to illustrate to the people then, warnings and promises of coming blessings are the same things that are in place today because that's who God is. He is serious about sin, so serious that he sent his son to die on that cross. And yet he loves his people. He loves his creation. That's why he made the provision for us to be able to come to him. Again, I don't know where you're at this morning. If you know the Lord, if you have given your life to Christ, that's the best decision you could ever possibly make. But he does require a decision from us. There is a transaction that needs to take place. He offers salvation as a gift. It's free. It's not a transaction that you have to pay for. No, that price has already been paid. But it is one that you must either receive or leave it there and understand that those warnings come to bear. So folks, as we go out of here this morning, my prayer is that you'll be dwelling on these things. You'll be meditating on these things that you'll be considering, that you'll ponder the things that we see in the scripture here this morning. God has promised. He promises here that he will accomplish his word. We draw strength, encouragement, knowing that part of it's been accomplished already. And that for those of us who belong to Jesus, our destiny is set. For those of us who don't, is today the day. Are you willing to bow the knee to acknowledge Jesus as Lord in your life, in your heart? That's the question that I'm going to leave all of us with. He is a good and loving and gracious and merciful and compassionate God. And the Bible tells us that it's his will that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. What that means is change your mind about God. Change your mind about the place that you've given him in your own heart, in your own life. That all would come to repentance and enter into life. Let's pray. Father, as we take this very brief look at the prophetic word, at these things that were said hundreds of years before they came to pass and and things that were said that have not yet come to pass. Lord, I I know my heart is encouraged. I know that as I look at these things that that I, I, I draw great hope and strength from your word because I look at this and I say, that happened. That truly happened. It came about. It came to pass that you spoke of long before knowing that there is still that clutch is yet to be let out, that there is still prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled. Lord, we take great courage and great hope from the fact that you're not finished with us. You're not finished with your creation. That you you tell us, Jesus, that you stand at the door of our hearts and you knock. You say to him who opens, I will come in and sup or I will come in and have an intimate relationship with him or with her. So Father, I pray for each one here that if that decision has not been made, that today, Christmas Day, would be that day.
and that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that you would empower them to live a life walking in the light as you're in the light, that we wouldn't have to walk in darkness and that your will would be accomplished in us and through us. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' precious, precious name. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand.